G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the round five preview edition in this ever-changing football landscape with uh, coronavirus still a major, major issue, obviously impacting on everything. So much bigger fish to fry than just the football world, but certainly having a massive impact on footy, both in terms of scheduling, but also, unfortunately, in terms of uh, players breaching protocols and being suitably or perhaps excessively, if you are one club, uh, punished, as uh, we're going to talk about that very shortly, as I introduce my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Finey? Yeah, I'm well, and not just football, but Hasn't life thrown up a few curveballs in the last seven days and we now live in a city divided. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah, well, I've, I've never lived in a, a war zone and obviously never would compare this to a war. But, um, yeah, the idea of not being able to venture into certain parts of your own town and, sub, you know, inner suburban parts in uh, in some cases, it's quite bizarre. Um Tell you though, in these times of uncertainty, Finey, I always look for certainty, particularly when it comes to fast food. Yeah, fast food, good food, great food, the best food. That's Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park. Amazing, isn't it? That throughout this entire tumultuous period, uh, Andrew's Hamburgers have kept the doors open and that great quality hamburger coming and it's really quality after 81 years that is marked by consistency. They're known as the best burger in town for a very good reason, because they're a real Aussie burger, never compromised on quality. Their name is Andrew's Hamburgers. They're at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, and I can give them no greater recommendation than, well, personally, my favourite burger. Well, I want certainty in my uh, home renovations too, Fanny, and I'm in dire need of some. My house is literally crumbling around my uh, my head at the moment. So what, what have you got for me? Well, the vice captain of the Collingwood Football Club may be in trouble, but the skipper is cruising because whether he's being forced to stay at home or, well, we know he's playing great football, but when at home, he enjoys all the luxuries of a West Point Properties build courtesy of Nick Spartels, the owner there. And it's a beautiful house. It takes advantage of a, a smaller block in a prime area, and it is a magnificent build. Won't give you the address, but I'll give you the name of the builders again, West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. They are A1 Builders Renovators, Andrews Hamburgers, A1 in burger needs. And uh, I think we could all use a good burger now. All right, they're wonderful sponsors for us. You're a wonderful audience. We're going to service you appropriately now. A lot to talk about. Let's get into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. 
an obvious uh, news story to talk about straight off the top here, Finey. Pretty dramatic stuff. And uh, we've had several players breach the COVID protocols so far. But um, no doubt this one, I think, uh, probably the most dramatic. And uh, in terms of penalty, certainly, and implications for the team concerned, I'm talking about Collingwood and the suspension for steel side bottom of four weeks for breaching those protocols. Also, teammate Lyndon Dunn gets one week, which is particularly relevant seeing the Pies have lost Jeremy Howe. Massive ramifications there in terms of personnel and them being able to field their best side over the next month. And, um, yeah, there's a a fair bit to unpack here. So I'll ask you first, Finey, the football ramifications are pretty huge. Yeah, well, still side bottom for mine is, I don't like the term a barometer, but when he gets off the leash there, really, you know the Collingwood are on song and he's vitally important to that team because he is certainly part of the mechanism that means retaining the ball then getting it in the hands forward of centre of a very capable player. So football ramifications are huge as through experience, through leadership and through ability, he's certainly in their top six players. And uh, Lyndon Dunn also, given Howe's absence? Yeah, I think they may have turned to Lyndon Dunn. It would have been Lyndon Dunn or Sharon Berg. Maybe Sharon Berg gets the nod now. Look, they're playing against Essendon. He only misses the one game. And it's interesting too, when it comes down to it, it really is in terms of the AFL response, suspension, isn't it? How many games you miss? That's really how seriously they take the offence. And I think um, Lyndon Dunn getting one week would be considered fortunate compared to Zach Merritt, who's also missing this week for what seemed, uh, I know the result was not innocuous, but seemed like a fairly innocuous moment in the game, didn't it? That uh, strike on Jack Silvani. So I think, Collingwood, with one week to done, is neither here or there, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because you you are, I mean, when you're comparing it with on-field stuff, I mean, it's apples and oranges, really, isn't it? It but, is, um, but, but in the end, that's really the penalty that the club, uh, the, the team faces, isn't it? That's all that they can meet out. Okay, so Collingwood has uh, reacted to the penalties by calling, well, side bottoms one, excessive. However, interestingly, they're not going to challenge that. Um, given what we know about this, and uh, it's still a bit sketchy for my liking, what what do you make of the penalty? Okay, off the four-week penalty, it's funny how when these things develop during the day and you hear a bit of talk back on radio, you get into social media, you can almost predict the length of the penalty by the zeitgeist, you know, the feel of the public. And the general feeling was from Collingwood supporters and the Collingwood camp that two weeks would be suitable. And outside the Collingwood camp, uh, throw the book at him. I had a feeling it was going to be four weeks. I think it is a serious infraction. It's a serious infraction. Unfortunately for Steel Sidebottom, isn't timing a bitch, really, because, you know, we're, we're facing, he's facing a suspension in this very uncertain period when all of a sudden Victoria is set aside from the other states and the season is in genuine jeopardy and it relies 
absolutely and totally on wherever the Victorian clubs play a an earnest um, sticking to the rules as set by by other states, set by other states, and that can be measured by the draconian penalties and and. Uh, measures taken by New South Wales. If anybody from a hotspot in Victoria enters New South Wales, they face an $11,000 fine and six months prison. So we're talking Mm. very serious, extremely serious measures. So uh, on that very same day, Steel Sidebottom was never going to be treated leniently by the AFL because his behaviour puts the competition in jeopardy. And no football means a lot more than just no football. It means no work for thousands of people, including ourselves, Rowan. I mean, we need to look at his behaviour as uh, one that jeopardises our livelihoods as well. So, oh, yeah. So, I think four weeks is the right penalty. What shocks me is the very defensive attitude of the Collingwood Football Club. Um, is it a case of in-house stern words to side bottom, but externally we back our man? Because surely there is no football program that can condone a person rolling drunk at 7.30am. His, yeah, beha- well, his behaviour yeah. sans COVID was totally contrary to that expected of an AFL footballer. Forget COVID-19. Terrible behaviour. Yeah, well, that was one thing that occurred to me. I must say, I mean, I don't drink. Well, when I say I don't drink, I mean, I'll have a social glass of wine. But even in my younger days, when I did drink a bit more, I mean, I I can't sort of comprehend that thing about being so drunk, you have no recollection of what's going on. Now, call me naive, but that to me suggests you would have to have consumed an absolute poultice of alcohol, and yeah, you're quite right. Middle of the season, uh, I, I was staggered, you know. And he's sort of one of the last blokes I would have thought it of. So I, I guess that's uh, part of this as well. Look, having said that, and I'm, it's a you know hugely important issue, but I think much as I sort of this is becoming a recurring theme, I was watching uh, some of Footy Classified last night. And I think there's another story that has now come up out of this courtesy of Eddie Maguire, the Collingwood president. Now, I don't know if people have seen the exchange, but they were talking about it and Matthew Lloyd was having his two bobs worth about it. And Eddie was very, Eddie got a bit shirty with Lloydy and seemed very keen to assert, oh, Lloydy threw up the question of should Steel Sidebottom remain as a vice captain? And Eddie very sort of unilaterally and, can't think he would have consulted the rest of the board, but he was very quick to pronounce, no, look, he knows he's stuffed up, he's made a mistake, move on. No no issue. Um, and basically talked over the top of Lloydy and, and sort of put his foot down and momentarily, despite the fact he was hosting a media show, uh, put his Collingwood president hat on and said, no, there won't be, he won't be dumped from uh, the leadership position. Caroline Wilson then chimed in correctly. Well, you know, the um, what if the, the coach and the leadership group have something to say about this? Eddie again came forth. Well, I'm telling you, it goes to the board. I'm the president. He said that sort of twice. I'm the president. 
Well, a couple of things. Uh, one, had he discussed this with the board and they'd arrived at a decision that what, despite whatever further was to come out, uh, Steel Sidebottom would definitely retain his leadership position. Um, so has he just gone above and beyond the rest of the board there and acted unilaterally? And secondly, what does it say about a club's leadership structure if, and we are speaking hypothetically, but say Nathan Buckley and the club's leadership group met about this and said, this puts us in a, a really awkward position, you know, if, if Steele needs to be part of a group disciplining other younger players, his position in the leadership group's untenable. And Eddie has said, you know, were that the case, he would they would be overridden by the board. Now, that to me raises all sorts of issues. I mean, you can't. That's just not how a board can operate or should operate. Surely, in, when it comes to matters of leadership, it's the on-field part of the club that has to have the biggest say. And uh, gee, it was a bad look for Eddie. I mean, I know we've been critical of him quite a bit recently, but it was just a terrible look. And I reckon he'd like those thirty seconds over again. What do you make of it? Well, if any of football supporter was in any doubt, or any person was in any doubt about the form of leadership or method of or ideolo- ideology at the Collingwood Football Club, they can be left in no doubt anymore. So we now know it's not a democracy, it's not a plutocracy, it's not a meritocracy. We now know, at least in the mind of the president, it's a dictatorship. Uh, that the word of playing group, leadership group, coach, even the board, because as you said, I doubt we had a hastily convened board meeting, counts for nothing. It's Eddie's way or the highway. And, yep, take that as you will, football world and Collingwood supporters. I agree with you, Rowan. It's a very dangerous way to run a football club. And it speaks, I think, a little bit to ego, a little bit to Eddie's own personality. And it may not be, as much as I say that and... Uh, say that it's a dictatorship, I'm not 100% sure when push came to shove whether that's exactly how it would run. In other words, in the real world, if Nathan Buckley sat down and eyeballed Eddie Maguire and said, not on my watch, mate, this is what I think needs to happen, I'm not 100% sure Eddie Maguire would say, bad luck, I I say A, you say B, so B can get stuffed. I'm not 100% sure he's got the balls to look Nathan Buckley in the eye and and, and live the words that he has spoken last night. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's smacked of ego, to be honest. And uh, the other element to this too, just quickly, is the there's a bit of hypocrisy here too. I mean, when the Jack Stephen thing happened, Eddie, with his media hat on, was, you know, getting stuck into Geelong about, you know, we don't know all the facts, just, you know, tell us all the facts. And then Eddie's come out yesterday with this sort of half-assed thing about, oh, still, you know, went to find the bathroom and walked out the wrong door. Now, I don't know how many people mistake a, a bathroom or toilet door for a front door of a house, but in my experience, they don't tend to look very similar. So It, it sounds um, like Daniel Wells lives on the set of a 1960s sitcom house. <laughs> you know, I've opened the toilet door 
I'm surprised he didn't drop three floors when he walked out. You know, the other the other thing that was funny was the description of a witness of saying he was half naked. And I thought, well, what does that mean for a man? Like, if he didn't have his shirt on, you say he was shirtless, don't you? So does that mean he had a shirt on and no pants on? Was he doing a, a Malcolm Fraser back in Memphis? I mean, what, what does half naked actually mean for a man? I agree. I, to be honest, you're either... It's either, hang, yeah, you're either exposed or you're dressed. You know, I mean, what's a bloke at, <laughs> what's a bloke at the beach? Nine-tenths naked? Yeah, well, well, someone said to me, well, it means he had his, un- his boxes on or his underpants on. I said, well, that's not half naked. That's sort of seventh-eighths naked, isn't it, yeah, technically speaking? Anyway, I mean, not meaning to make light of it, but, uh, gee, I mean, over the years, Collingwood's got a fairly – lengthy catalogue now of player misdemeanours. But I've got to say, I mean, you know, look, still side bottom. I know people have pulled out the good bloke defence, and he is a lovely bloke, and he's sort of the last person I'd expect to do this. But that whole thing about having an absolute skinful midway through the season, you know, for, above, and above the COVID stuff, I mean, it's, wow. I, I, I'd be pretty, I'll tell you what, right now, if I was a member of, the Collingwood board, given Eddie's comments last night, or a member of the Collingwood football department, uh, I would be severely pissed off about the events of the last couple of days. One last Uh, question on this one, Rowan. Yeah. And it has to be to the Victorian police. If you or I, or a listener listener to this podcast, was staggering around let's say in your jocks or whatever he was wearing at 7.30 in the morning and the police came upon you. And, and and again, you've got to assume he was walking around for a while. It's not as though he walked out the door and the police just happened to be there. That'd be one in a million, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. So he's, he's walking around so stonkered at 7 in the morning that he can't find the house that he was in and he's walking around the streets do you think it's normal practice for the police to pick you up and then run a taxi service to your house? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not how it rolls for the for normal members of the public, and I don't think that's right. I don't think if you or any you I or anybody else cop a drunken disorderly, steel side bottom should be getting a limousine service back to his home. Yeah, yeah, no, touch of the one rule for some about it. All right, we've got to move on uh, more quickly. A couple of other COVID-related things, and they're pretty important. Um, First of all, uh, a lot of players in Melbourne clubs living in those 10 areas identified as hotspots have already been moved out of them to various alternative accommodations that was going on last night on Wednesday night. The um, the clubs we believe have players involved in this are Essendon, Richmond, North Melbourne, St Kilda and Carlton. There may be others. So there's players from those clubs all finding alternative sleeping and living arrangements uh, temporarily. Um, if they don't do that, they will be barred from New South Wales. New South Wales has placed a blanket ban on anyone entering the state who resides in those areas. So that's a major logistical nightmare now the AFL's dealing with on top of the scheduling and all that stuff. And the other part too is um, several Victorian clubs 
well, most expecting now to be sent interstate, probably to Sydney. Uh, we're talking about Northern Territory as a potential hub as well. Um, you said you you heard some speculation this morning clubs might end up having to play five games over a 32-day period, uh, which again underlines the, in hindsight, absolute wisdom of the shortened quarters. Uh, but, you know, we, we have talked every week, haven't we, about this being a very fluid situation and we don't know what's going to happen. Well, anyone who is starting to get comfortable about how this season would look, the last few days would have uh, put that to rest, wouldn't they? Because it's it's all over the shop. Could be anywhere. I think what we know is that rounds six and seven, uh, you can th- put them in the bin, the fixture. Don't worry about that fixture now. It's going to look completely different. I think we're facing the likelihood of no football or football teams in Victoria for a period. And just on five games in 32, that's not that much. You know teams do play five games in 32 normally. Do they? Well, five in 35 is five weeks. Oh, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah, no, okay. So a team that plays on a Friday night at the end of a four-week period... If their next game's on a Friday or a Thursday, that's like a 32-day period, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's not that... Yeah, no. No, but not, I mean... It's not look, that kooky. You know, I, I guess the whole thing about hubs and whatever, it's sort of less dramatic if you're talking about two clubs from WA or two clubs from oh, yeah. South Australia. No, no, it's, it's very start, dramatic. When you start talking about, you know, well, there's 10 clubs in Victoria... Um, Wow, yeah. I'd hate to be the uh, travel manager at the AFL at the moment. You'd be uh, working literally around the clock. I, I reckon uh, the most is the the best scenario, just the way things have worked out in Australia, is if they could get all the Victorian clubs or divide them between Darwin and Alice Springs and get them all into the Northern Territory, I reckon that would be the way to go. Well, Northern Territory... Um, certainly has been, uh, well, totally uh, virus-free for a while. In fact, I, I saw it. I haven't even had a chance to check this up, but I did see a tweet from someone last night that apparently a, a um, positive testing person from Melbourne had arrived in Darwin. So uh, I don't know if that's going to add another well, element of drama to it. Yes, but, it um, yeah, I mean... Like I said, we're recording this now. Who knows if what we're talking about now will be the case in a few hours. So, uh, you know, you think, and, and, and of course, you know, we're saying poor old AFL, poor old governments having to deal with this. It's just an absolute nightmare. Uh, not to mention, of course, the obvious major, major health ramifications. Rowan, I've, right, got to, I've enough... got to ask you, is there a chance that in the next fortnight the AFL is forced to throw their hands up in the air and say, Season over. I don't think so. No, I think they will do absolutely everything in their power to keep it going, which is why they mentioned December in the first place. But I think it's, I'll I'll say this, I reckon it's pretty likely we're going to have another pause in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Uh, All right, we've got to get on with it. Uh, There's the news, plenty to talk about there. But for now, at least, we still have games going on. There's nine of them. Let's preview on Footyology. Previews with Punch. 
Right, well, a hastily rejigged fixture. Originally, the Thursday night game in round five had uh, Richmond playing West Coast up in a hub. That, of course, has now all changed. And we have a local derby of sorts in uh, Melbourne at Marvel Stadium, 7.40 Thursday evening. Carlton taking on St Kilda. I wouldn't call them two boom teams, but certainly two teams which are showing a bit of promise. So it is quite an appetising clash, this one, Fine, Are you looking forward to it? Yeah. It's, uh, look, Carlton St Kilda's always been a big clash for uh, supporters of both clubs. There's a bit of synergy between the two clubs, and I have always hated Carlton because of the pain they've inflicted on St Kilda when I was growing up. You know, it was 100 points every time we played them virtually throughout the 80s. So from my perspective, it's always been a game that I really like seeing St Kilda do well in. And I think the marbles have fallen pretty well for St Kilda here in as much that originally the game was to be held at the MCG on Saturday afternoon. And given St Kilda's form in the first four games of the season, certainly since we've returned... Two very good wins at Marvel Stadium. One very disappointing loss at the MCG. I don't think there's too many St Kilda supporters or indeed people at the St Kilda Football Club who are disappointed to have seen the game moved under the roof at Marvel Stadium. So, yeah, I think the marbles have fallen well. What do you make of it? Uh, No, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, the Blues uh, have, in bursts at least, played some really uh, effective footy. And the Saints have been at their best, really exciting. I'll tell you one thing, it's not rocket science. I've actually written a column for Australian Community Media this week about, partly about Port Adelaide, but partly about St Kilda. One thing you can sheet home their improvement to is conversion. I mean, that scoreline of 15-3 against the Tigers, that's one of the most accurate we've seen for a long time. But also in the win over the Western Bulldogs, they were incredibly accurate. I think that was 14 Four. Five or something. 14 four. 14 four. Yep. So, I mean, just kicking goals instead of points really helps. And uh, they're, I think, at the moment, um, equal second for conversion. So, uh, their, their conversion over the last few years have been shocking. In fact, they were last last year and I think second last the year before and last the year before that. So, uh, it's not just the, the key men either. Um, Jack Billings, I think, has kicked five straight so far this season. Um, Rowan Marshall uh, in the ruck, he's a pretty good kick for goal. So, you know, sort of fundamentals, getting them right really helps. I think St Kilda's um, uh, leg speed and and run is proving a really valuable weapon. And in terms of personnel, their imports are really living up to the bill. Nonetheless, Dan Butler, he's been terrific. He was fantastic against Richmond, I thought. Um, To that end, Unfortunately, we'll lose uh, Zach Jones this week with a hamstring injury, although uh, skipper Jaron Geary will come back. But looking at these two sides lining up, I must say, I think the Saints might uh, get the Blues on the outside with a bit of that extra run on that basis. Uh, And also, I'm not sure, I don't know if this is just a a hang-up from older days, but just Carlton, to me, doesn't seem to be as effective a side Uh, at Docklands, and St Kilda, I think, played pretty well. So St Kilda, for me, for this one, what say you? Yeah, I think St Kilda's form at the Docklands at Marvel Stadium holds up, and uh, without being 
too harsh on and Carlton, who've definitely shown something this year in a couple of very impressive, tight victories. Uh, the wins over Richmond and the Bulldogs tend one to think that the Saints should be able to handle the Blues, who get two good ins. I know they lose Silvani, but they get back Harry Mackay and also Zach Fisher. And don't underestimate Zach Fisher. Good little footballer, great ball getter, and he's got some leg speed. So I think it'll be a good game of football, but I'm tipping the Saints. All right, we're both going for the Saints. Let's now move to Friday evening at the MCG. Uh, what would uh, have ordinarily been the Anzac Day clash? Well, it's now, what, uh, more than two months after Anzac Day. But finally, Collingwood plays Essendon, 7.50 Friday evening at the MCG. A uh, couple of spanners in the works for both clubs now. Obviously, we've talked about Steel Sidebottom. Uh, we've talked about Lyndon Dunn, who's shaped as a obvious replacement for Jeremy Howe. So... The Pies having to reorganise their back line and losing a key on baller. Having said that uh, losing side bottom is a major blow, they do look like having Adam Trelaw back. So uh, that's pretty handy. Essendon, Zach Merritt out suspended. Very, very costly absence from him for a, a silly act. Um, just by the by, I think that probably was worth a week. Patrick Ambrose doesn't get much attention, but he's a, an important defender for them. He's out now with a foot injury. Um, Connor McKenna will return for the Dons, but uh, they were ordinary last week, Essendon against Carlton. They were really ordinary. Uh, there's, there's, there's some issues with some of the senior players there, and we did talk about this, but uh, the likes of Tom Bell Chambers in the ruck, David Zarakis, I mean, they're two guys who just need to show more than they do routinely in these sorts of situations. A lot of speculation Essendon might go for Andrew Phillips uh, in the ruck. And Zarakis, well, he never seems to lose his spot. So I'll be interested, interested to see if there's repercussions out of last week. Although, to be honest, he was probably a bit better last week than he had been. But I don't, uh, you know, you look at Essendon's form line here. They'd won two games, but two months apart, both against sides that weren't expected to do much this season. And they just got over the line in both. Um, and they came up against the side playing some decent footy last week and palpably struggled. I, I just You cannot possibly tip them Collingwood's personnel and distraction issues or not. So I think the Pies win this one pretty comfortably. Yeah, I'm in your corner on this one, exactly for the reasons that you've stated. Zach Merritt is a big loss. I tend to feel that Zoharakis keeps his spot in the team on a weekly basis because of a dynamic that you do see at football clubs, and that is that when the entire football public and certainly the supporters of a certain team are calling for the scalp of a player and demanding that he gets dropped, sometimes a coach gets his back up almost to the point where they say, hang on, I picked the team, not general consensus. And on that basis, Zaharaka stays in the team. It doesn't A coach or selection committee don't want to look as though they're sort of just um, folding and bending to the needs and of the baying mob. And as you said, he probably went better this week than the week before. I can tell you that there's no way Bell Chambers is playing this week. Andrew Phillips will be in the team, and that'll please you, Rowan, but it won't change the result. Collingwood, if not in a canter, because these games often throw up different results to the ones that you imagine, Collingwood ultimately to get over Essendon. All right, there's two we agree on. Uh, let's move to the 
well, what once would have seemed unlikely venue of Metricon Stadium and West Coast taking on Sydney, those great rivals of the mid-2000s. West Coast, in a world of hurt at the moment, they are playing some seriously ordinary footy. uh, And their season, well, in terms of premiership aspirations, could be just about done and dusted if they can't turn it around right now and get a win over the always plucky Swans, who I think overall have had pretty reasonable form this season. Not that impressive against the Bulldogs last week, but their form prior to that uh, always saw them a chance to get a couple more wins. Um, Jeremy McGovern back for the Eagles. Obviously, that's structurally pretty important. Uh, Swans, yeah, like I said, they they... They plotted a bit against the Bulldogs. Uh, forward line personnel, a big issue. Uh, obviously, Buddy Franklin leaves a massive hole that they were never going to fill. But we've, we've pumped up Tom Papley. I mean, he's a good enough ground-level goal sneak. He shouldn't have to play as a leading hit-up marking target as well. But that's what he's having to do. I mean, he's doing an awesome job of it. But it's not enough for him. Uh, they just don't have enough firepower, the Swans. And the midfield... Pretty reliant on the old war horses of Parker and Kennedy. So as bad as West Coast playing, um, I think uh, they end up winning this game. It's no illusion. West Coast are going terribly. And it's funny because last week I sort of got sucked into the fact that it was a must-win game for the West Coast, so they would win it. But they were just atrocious. It, the problem is manifold. And obviously, Darling... He's a girl with a curl, isn't he, really? He's either, when he's good, he's very, very good. And when he's bad, he's terrible. And I think at the moment we are playing with the bad, he's terrible, darling, because he's just not having any impact whatsoever. And I've got to say, I've got concerns for the West Coast backline, in as much that Schofield will be replaced by the spasmodic Jeremy McGovern. And to me, that leaves their backline actually too large and cumbersome to play against the smaller Sydney forward line. Now, whether that means... It all depends on delivery into the Swans forward line. If the Swans midfield can lower their eyes and either spot up targets or get the ball onto the ground, then I don't know how Barras, McGovern and Brander are going to be able to compete at ground level against the likes of Papley, Ronk, uh, uh, Blakey and their other smaller type forwards. It's quite an interesting sort of scenario, does the bigger back line succeed or the smaller forward line have its day? And I just think given the way the season is playing out, uh, I actually believe West Coast are already are already gone. I know you're saying this is last chance saloon. I think that was last week. And to be true to that, I'll be picking the Swans. Whoa. Oh, okay. That is a major upset. All right, I'm going West Coast, you're going Sydney. Now, who'd have thought this would have been one of the more appetising games of a round of footy, but it is, and that is Geelong playing Gold Coast down at GMHBA Stadium. Saturday twilight game, 4.35. It's a fantastic test for the Suns, who have been terrific so far and great to watch. the Matt Rowell story just gets bigger each week. I mean, now incredibly, uh, a debutant, one of the uh, one of the favourites for the Brownlow Medal. Um, he's already got thirty AFL Coaches Association votes, which is is just quite staggering. Geelong, 
Uh, just going, lost to Carlton two weeks ago. Just got over the line uh, against the Demons last week in one of the worst games of all time. They're playing slow, halting football. Uh, not very impressive at all. Quite the antithesis of the Suns, who I think one of the reasons everyone's getting behind them is the aesthetically pleasing nature of the footy they're playing. They 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 run. They they run and carry. They take the game on. Geez, I wish more sides would do that. But Rao, uh, the poster boy for them, they've had other real important inclusions as well and the likes of Greenwood, Ellis, the, those senior men are, are proving great pickups for them. Got a great stalwart and unsung hero as co-captain in the Ruck 2 and Jared Witts. He's a week-in, week-out performer for them. However, even with no crowd there, Geelong is a huge challenge. The dimensions of the ground, we talk about them a lot, but it does make it pretty tough on those unfamiliar with it. And I dare say there's plenty of sons that will be very unfamiliar with it. Cats hardly ever lose one in a row at home, let alone two. I can't see them losing this one. I think the Suns will give plenty of pluck, but in the end, I'm going for Geelong. Uh, not comfortably, but by enough. I'd, I'd say in the order of five goals. What do you reckon? Well, this would have been an enormous party, wouldn't it, with Selwood playing his 300th and Gary Ablett playing his 350th. Unfortunately, the party is going to have to be held with no guests, nobody really there to celebrate. But uh, I'm sure that internally it's being, however teams do motivate from these milestone games, I'm sure that's been part of the build-up. It's funny though, Rowan, in the build-up to the game and how the media have recognised Selwood and Ablett's achievement, one thing that I've not heard played on at all is the fact that of course, Gary Ablett was a major figure at the Gold Coast Suns. You know, I mean, yeah. it's interesting that Geelong are playing Gold Coast on Gary Ablett's 350th. It reminds me of an episode of The Simpsons when Reverend Lovejoy was uh, talking to a collective group, something to do with religion, and Apu was standing there, and Reverend Lovejoy said to Christians, Jews, Muslims, and miscellaneous, and he looked at Apu, and Apu said, there are 900 million of us. It's sort of the same. It's sort of the same with Gary Ablett. He was their captain. He did play there for a number of seasons. He did win a Brownlow medal there. I mean, part of his resume is very much Gold Coast Suns, and it's almost been obliterated from the record. So I, I just yeah. find yeah, well, a hundred, a hundred and ten games. Yeah, yeah. for uh, the Suns. Do you find that? Do you feel the same way that it's almost a, a, a minor aside? You know, this great Geelong champion. Oh, he and he did play Gold Coast, he played over 100 games, won a Brownlow medal and captained them. For, you know, he was their inaugural captain. So uh, not that they'll be partaking in the celebration and not that they'll win the game, but I just think it's an interesting aside. Geelong, four mine, and I can't wait to see how far Gold Coast have come by seeing how far they can push Geelong in this game. But I don't think they can push them right to the final siren. Okay, so cats are both of us. Let's return to Marvel Stadium Saturday evening, 7.40 local time. And this one's intriguing. The Western Bulldogs taking on North Melbourne, um, two of the co-tenants of Marvel Stadium, of course. But, uh, gee, if you, this had come up a couple of weeks ago, I think everyone would have been on the same page. But things have changed. The Bulldogs 
have found some form. They've knocked over both the Sydney teams in succession. And the Roos, unfortunately for them, have lost a bit of form. They have now gone under the last couple of weeks after starting really well. Absolutely no doubt for them the crucial part of this has been the loss of Ben Cunnington. And that shapes as a major plank in this game. Uh, how do you see this one panning out? Uh, for most of my football following life, I've, I've always found it hard to pick Footscray North or Western Bulldogs North. And again, there's not a lot between these two teams, but I had a lot of faith in Western Bulldogs prior to the start of the year. And I think that they're slowly building towards the side I thought they'd be. You've got to remember, they're going to be without Dunkley and Hunter. This is the last game that Lockie Hunter is not available for from his four-game suspension. That leaves a big, a gaping hole in their midfield, doesn't it? But one that they were able to fill last game against Sydney. Bontempelli was magnificent. I think he, I think the captaincy sits well, and I think Bulldogs can win. Yeah, no, it's a fair point about the uh, the midfielders. I, I wonder if that last quarter against Hawthorne last week might just have turned things around for the Roos. Obviously, they'll be hoping that's the case because when they got on their bike, they're a completely different side. But yeah, I think there's been a fair bit of substance about the doggies in the last couple of weeks. And uh, yep, I think we both end up tipping them. All right, now this. Uh, this is a marquee game. It sort of takes you back to the early 2000s or 2004, 2003, 2004. And I'm talking about Brisbane taking on Port Adelaide at the Gabba, Saturday, 7.40. Uh, this is a clash between top of the ladder, Port, and Brisbane, currently third. And uh, this should be an absolute ripper, Fine, Are you looking forward to this one? I am. It's funny. when So when you see a Brisbane-Port clash, you remember the... Uh, sort of zenith of their two comings, and that is, of course, at, around that period. They met in a grand final. You know what I think of. I know what you're going to say here. Um, was it uh, two draws and a one-point game in a row or in something? Their, in first, the late 90s? their first three games. Yeah. What what, what happened? Were they two draws? draws or two two draws and a two-pointer. Well, I was, at, I was at one of the draws in 98 um, at the Gabba. That, that was their uh, first three. Who, they were their first three games. You know, yeah, remarkable. Port had just entered the competition. That is amazing, isn't it? Two draws and a it two is. pointer in their first three encounters. Now tell us, tell us about the the absolute draw card of this game for me is the uh, the two Charlies, little Charlie Cameron up one end for Brisbane and big Charlie Dixon down the other for the Power. At last, we've got some uh, two noted goal kickers to focus our attentions on and I guess the challenge will be for the opposition who's more likely to win the battle of short circuiting and I've got to say at this point advantage Brisbane because they do have a mighty good full back in Harris Andrews don't they mm. I just think yeah well that I mean his his matchup on Dixon will be a rip I'll tell you what uh, Dixon boy he's clunking some serious marks. He was terrific last yep. week. And that ba- bag of six, I mean, in, in current definitions, that's about a, worth about a dozen in the old parlance. So uh, Andrews will have his work cut out, but it's a, a very appetising one-on-one duel, that and we uh, we don't see many of them anymore, so it'll be a good one. And you know what happened after... Who wins? He, you know what happened after he kicked his sixth goal? He kicked his sixth goal about halfway through the last quarter. You know what happened? Mm-hmm. 
no. He got cotton wooled. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, fair enough. Well, I was just saying, he could have kicked seven or eight. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, well, what's I mean, that the modern equivalent of? Fred Fanning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or true. Or, of course, that famous day, Jason Dunstall was a chance to uh, to break Fred Fanning's record and they ABC crossed to Fred Fanning and he said, oh, I hope he doesn't kick it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't the response they were expecting. Um, he, got, right. he got his way. Who are you tipping? Uh, Brisbane. All right. I'm going for Brisbane by a kick, but uh, going to be a great game. Yeah, this looking really forward to looking it. Looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Uh, can't say I'm looking forward to this one as much because it is a battle of the bottom. Uh, about 15 hours after the battle at the top, a battle of the bottom. Uh, same state, Metricon Stadium, the venue for this one, 105 Sunday afternoon, Adelaide taking on Fremantle. Now, having said, finally, it's a battle of the bottom. I think these are sides with very different uh, form lines. The Crows have just been absolutely dismal, apart from a quarter against Sydney back in round one in March and their third quarter against Brisbane last week, which out of nowhere, they start suddenly played a short period of cohesive football. Tex Walker kicked a couple and they looked a bit better, but... Let's be honest, if Brisbane had a kick straight last week, they would have been absolutely thumped. Fremantle, yeah, I'm worried a bit about them, and obviously you worry more with Nat Fife, a major out. But, uh, gee, they've, they'd played well enough in their first couple to jag at least one of them. If they don't win this one, well, you wonder where that win's going to come from. Um, surely, even without Nat Fife, Fremantle have got enough to beat the Crows, given where the Crows are at at the moment. Credit where credit's due. I know I'm not a, anybody who's listened to this podcast knows I'm not a fan of Taylor Walker, but yeah, he did give them a bit of a lift in the third quarter. And when you look at Fremantle's back line, <clears throat> I'm assuming would Griffin Logue play on him just for the size matchup? Oh, I'd probably have to, wouldn't he? Yeah, so he's got enough experience to get a bit of a result against Griffin Logue, I would have thought. Of course, it all comes down to how the ball gets to him and. Rory Sloan is injured stroke uh, coming to the end of his career, one or the other, simply nowhere near as effective as he should be. Whichever Crouch or Crouch's play don't give them enough drive. Yeah, they struggle to really get the ball into the forward line in any meaningful way. Fremantle's loss of Fife, I think, balances it up a little bit. Otherwise, I would have been very bullish about Fremantle. Nevertheless, I thought Tabiner and Hogan worked very well last week, so I'm sticking with the Fremantle Dockers, as you said, as a team that has definitely shown something this year without getting a run on the board, as compared to a team that has shown absolutely nothing this year. Freo for mine. All right, Freo for both of us. Back to Melbourne for the uh, second game on the Sunday menu of three, and that is Melbourne playing Richmond, of course, uh, part of the rework schedule. The Tigers initially were going to open this round against West Coast, but stay at home for now. 3.35 Sunday afternoon, battle of the MCG co-tenants, and uh, not a lot to shout about for either of these sides at the moment. The Demons, well, I nearly pinched a win over the Cats, but uh, again, you know, um, half culpable for one of the worst games of footy ever played. Uh, they are prone to some serious and very costly lapses in among 
bursts of decent footy. And the Tigers, well, yeah, the 64 million or however much it is question at the moment because that, um, you know, you can talk about structure and personnel and whatever, but there's a more fundamental problem for Richmond at the moment, I think, finding, and that is just that loss of appetite. Simply, they're not pressuring the opposition ball carrier as much as they did. They're not turning the ball over in dangerous areas as much. Their conversion is poorer. Uh, They're just off the pace. And however many degrees off their pace, it's been enough to see them um, subsequently beaten by Hawthorne and by St Kilda last week. So after four games, they've got a scratchy win in round one and a very ordinary standard draw in round two. Two losses in a row. Uh, We haven't seen the Tigers in this position for a while. Surely they get out of it this week, don't they? Yeah, what a difference the fixturing reshuffle has made, hasn't it? Because a couple of weeks ago, they thought that they were off to Brisbane to face West Coast in a Thunderdome-style clash to the death where the loser loses their life because that's almost what it would have been in terms of top four, but now they have a less momentous game against a far less impressive team. And given how poor West Coast has been, that's saying something. I mean, Melbourne, to me, uh, they just don't have the right structure. I've said it. The minute the trade period ended last year, I'm saying, why have they gone for two wingmen, you know, Langdon and Tomlinson. I think Langdon's been okay. I think Tomlinson's a waste of space, personally. But uh, their forward line was not attended to, and that's where the problem is. Uh, uh, As much as their ball usage is questionable, and Clayton Oliver's come under the magnifying glass a little bit. Uh, He gets it, but he ain't doing much with it. Viney looked promising in round one. He looks a bit ragged at the moment. Gets a bit of the ball, but doesn't really worry too much about disposal. To me, Brayshaw is the best of their midfielders. Um, their back line, there's been a bit of a shuffle around. I'll give you an idea how poor Melbourne's forward line is. This kid, Cozzy Pickett, he's only played a couple of games. And last week against Geelong, he actually fumbled just about every time he got the ball. But at least he hit the ball and the pack with some velocity, and he was their most exciting option. Now, they are a, they are a, an absolute... Shambles, Melbourne. That not only will they not win this game, but they won't win many games this year. I think they'll finish, save Adelaide. They'll finish second bottom, I reckon. Well, that's where they finished last year. It's a remarkable downturn from the dizzy heights of a preliminary final in 2018. Which is, I mean, you look at them and you just think, well, they were capable of that. Why are they any less capable now? Where, where did you have them pre-season? Oh, so long ago. Uh, I'm straight. I, I think, yeah, I had him outside the eight, but I had him improving a reasonable amount. I, I think the personnel's there. I, I, there's something weird about the psyche of that club. I mm. think. I had, right, I, had him, uh, I had him second bottom. Okay. All right. Well, you may be right. We're both going for the Tigers, and round five finishes up uh, in Sydney at six ten. Sunday afternoon with GWS taking on Hawthorne. Now, this is a pretty interesting game too. The Giants had been in ordinary form for a couple of weeks, but really found something against the Magpies last Friday night. That was an impressive 
performance and uh, one underpinned by the stars. Toby Green, fantastic. Gee, a valuable player for them, not only in terms of goals kicked, but just his energy levels and ability to pick up possessions further up the ground. Josh Kelly was good for him as well. Lockie Winfield recovered from that concussion, was a, a good performer as well. So the stars are back in alignment for the GWS in personnel terms. But the uh, Hawks... And well, not uh, really. I mean, they lose two important defenders. Okay, well, Phil is in. Oh, well, Zach Williams and Davis are out. Uh, uh, very good point, and I would have come to that eventually. But, yeah, no, it's a really good point. Uh, both with hamstring injuries, obviously, we'll miss. Uh, I guess the question, given the opponent, is does Hawthorne have a forward set up to capitalise on that? Um, now the Hawks have been pretty good. That was a really impressive win over Richmond. And for three quarters last week against North, they were uh, they were pretty impressive as well, but stopped as if shot. So they're not the uh, absolutely reliable Hawks of old. They're prone to the odd laps themselves. Uh, I think they'll give the Giants a bit of uh, a hurry up here, and their record against the Giants is actually pretty good too, if that means anything to you. How do you see this one going? Well, you know, losing Williams and Davis, I think I think we have to come to a realisation about GWS, which is completely different to GWS in their first seven seasons or whatever it has been, I think seven, and that is they don't have a great deal of depth. So when they do lose players, the guys that come in are not the same quality as the ones that go out. So losing Williams and Davis out of the defence can be could have been critical for them, but they face Hawthorne, who lose arguably their most dangerous forward in Luke Bruce. There's a bit of uh, saving grace for GWS. So with that midfield all surviving, and you almost have to look week to week, Toby Green is definitely a week to week proposition, but he seems fine. So I'll be going for GWS. All right. Uh, certainly a game with plenty going for it, I think, just on the uh, from a neutral supporter's perspective. Did you go for all Hawthorne? Right, that- no, no, I'll go for GWS. Sorry, I meant to, I failed to give that tip. Uh, only narrowly, though. I think the Hawks will really push them, and I wouldn't be surprised if they won. Uh, all right, there is round five, duly previewed. Uh, I reckon we changed the pace up a bit now, Finey, and uh, let's take our minds off footy for a moment. Let's talk about uh, some music, some movies, and some TV of a, a distant and golden age. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. All right, you had the choice of year in vinyl and video this week, Finey. What have you gone with? I went for 1992, Rowan. Uh, Any particular reason for that? Because we have very few years left. No, because um, <laughs> yeah, we are running. We are running out of years. This I is do. Nineteen ninety two proved to be really good, actually. Well, okay, um, I'm going to kick us off. I can I say, in musical terms, I think nineteen, and we are starting with music. I think nineteen ninety two might almost be my favourite year of music. I would, I didn't know that previously, but when I had a look, what came out in ninety two? Some of my all time favourite albums came out this year. Here's a a sample. And these are only the ones I think are really, really good. Faith No More released Angel Dust. 
fantastic album. Sugar, which was a uh, offshoot of uh, Bob Moles, uh, formerly Huskadoo, released Copper Blue, fantastic album. Stone Temple Pilots released their debut, Core, one of my very favourite albums. Alice in Chains released Dirt, a major, major album in the whole grunge movement and another of my favourite albums. Now, to not go with them, you'd have to think that the album I've come up with is pretty damn special. Can you guess where I'm headed in in this direction, Fine? Well, it has to be one of your T-shirt bands. It certainly is, and uh, surely you need no more clues. I am going with what, in my view, uh, is the greatest rock album of all time. Really? Rage Against the Machine. Yep, absolutely. I did my top 20 albums recently on Twitter, and that is number one. Rage Against the Machine's self-titled debut from 1992. Can I just ask you? Can I just ask you, when they say eponymous... Does that mean self-titled? Uh, I think so, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah I just see this sure word, it does. you know, their eponymous album or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. so this is it. Yeah, this is it. Yeah, okay. They're 20 seconds I've lost now to try to describe my favourite album of all time. Why is this the, the best album ever? Rewrite the genres. This It, it was a fusion of rap, um, of funk, of metal. Hadn't been done in any way before and these guys not only created something they just blew you away with it there's a more sonically powerful album than this i am yet to hear it incredible production zach de la rocca's rap vocals tom morello's incredible effects on the guitar one of the all-time great rhythm sections tim comerford on bass and brad wilk on drums and this album I was going to say literally explodes, but orally it explodes. The first track off this album is Bomb Track. Uh, Here's another thing, Fidey. You know I'm pretty political. There has never been a more political band in the history of rock music. These guys, and it's radical politics. They're talking about the Zapatistas, the Mexican revolutionaries, uh, the cause of uh, native Indians in the US. They're talking about the Eurocentricity of American education, they're talking about governments, they're talking about media manipulation, intensely political, and yeah, there's a lot of expletives, but in between them, there are some of the most intelligent observations on politics I've ever heard in a, in a musical sense. But for me, it's not, as much as I like the politics, the music wins the day for me. It's, it's just an incredible combination. The rhythm section just belts you over the head. Zach's vocals are perfect for a rock backdrop, and Tom Morello gets sounds out of the guitar you've never heard before. Here's the lineup: Every song a classic. Bomb track, Killing in the Name, which I'm sure you know as well, Fine. Take the Power Back, Settle for Nothing, my personal favourite Rage Against the Machine track, Bullet in the Head, Know Your Enemy, Wake Up, uh, used on the soundtrack of The Matrix, uh, Fistful of Steel, Township Rebellion, and Freedom. Ten tracks. I reckon a lot of people would know at least six or seven of those tracks. Uh, Nearly 30 years since this album came out, still sounds fresh as a daisy. I love everything they've done. I find it really hard to separate all their albums, but if push comes to shove, this for me 
fractionally wins a day. Rage Against the Machine, self-titled album. If you're one of the few people on the planet that haven't heard it, go out right now, get it, listen to it, and love it. All right. It is a great album, and I've heard it all. Got a good mate, Sheebs, who used to, uh, when he was in Melbourne, used to play that ad nauseum, and I, I, it is brilliant. It is great, because it is more than hard metal rock. I wouldn't call it heavy metal. I'd call it hard metal rock is their core, but you're right. It does have other elements, and funk is definitely one of them. So I'm glad that you enjoy and pick up on the more the, the parts that make you want to move your body rather than sort of bang your head. So I agree. I think it's a great album. But of course, any person who appreciates music knows that it runs a distant second to my pick for 1992. The iconic, the iconic, much covered, loved by... Now, it's been covered, and my not only do I love this, but my daughter's who's 23, her generation loves it. It's one of the, you know, few intersecting points of music love that we have and we can enjoy together. And, you know, it it probably lyrically is the greatest piece of music ever produced because it gives us lines like, my baby worked her Honda playing workout tapes to Fonda. My anaconda... Don't want none unless she's got buns, hun. I mean, is that not written by somebody who's simply a pure genius? Of course, that genius was <laughs> Sir Mix-a-Lot with Baby Got Back. Now, you know I love Baby Got Back because I had that, what I believe is a high moment, but you and some listeners felt was a low moment in covering Baby Got Back uh, and turning it into a song about the Brisbane Lions. <laughs> no, well, hang on. in fairness, I think the, the live moment for me wasn't actually the finished product. It was the recording of that product, which was a painful, yeah, it was painful difficult process. It was difficult. And one one which producer Carl Bianco needs to be given due credit for because he showed an enormous amount of patience that <laughs> night. Yeah. Um, so nineteen ninety two saw the release of Sir Mixalot's hilarious rap that was the beauty of it is that it's one of those rap songs that was able to be um learnt by fans and many of us did learn it and it's just you know, baby got back do you want do you want another you know i mean it's it's written by the shakes whoever wrote this must have been channeling shakespeare uh, uh, you know what i i like i'm going to you will consider this a faux pas, not quite on the scale of your Midnight Oils and Rob Kerr one last night, uh, last week, but uh, I actually don't know this song. Oh, that's terrible, mate. That's terrible. Well, so who, who performs it? A ba- uh, they're called Sir Mix-a-Lot. And, okay. you know, it's Baby Got Back. It's about a guy that likes a girl with a bit of, you know, a bit of meat in her rump. And, and is it is it is it rap? Is it yeah? It's what a, is it? It's a what rap you, song, you know. Okay. Um, you did, can do. Did, hang on. Wait. Did did Justin Timberlake do that song? No. No. Okay. You can do side bends or sit ups, but baby, don't lose that back. You know. Some right. guys. So some, you've gone. So you've got. You've gone for a song ahead of an album. You couldn't oh, yeah. find an album. Oh no, no, it's a song. You know, and it's 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 like you know. Um, 
Some guys see your butt and leave it, but I pull up quick to retrieve it. You know, some others say you're fat, but I ain't down with that. Uh, well, you know what I thought of when you said that? <laughs> there was a young man from Nantucket. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Cosmo, Cosmo says you're kicking to red beans and rice. You should be sticking. <laughs> Not only does he praise the butt, he also gives very good advice how to maintain a big butt. All right, so you're a fan of the lyrical content. What about music sonically? It's great. It's great. It's good. It stands up. You know, but the thing is, it it has lived a life that still is alive. You know, that song has been covered by, I don't know, it was a a female rapper or one of the the big voices in female music a couple of years ago. There's also a version with the, I think, the London Philharmonic. Um, It is, and it... In, in 2017, they had the 25-year anniversary of the song, and it was a major celebration. I mean, as much as I'm uh, enjoying the lighthearted nature of the song, it has been a sort of iconic song and pretty, pretty enduring and noted for its time. It, in other words, if there was a Smithsonian for music, I'm not denying Rage Against the Machine's eponymous album would be there, but you might be a little shocked to see that old Sir Mix-a-Lot's I Baby Got Back would also be in that Smithsonian. All right. Well, I'll, I'll uh, as soon as we finish, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll give it a decent listen. All right. There's music. Uh, time now to talk about movies. I'm going to let you kick off. You do your 1992 movie first. Okay. Well, you know, I've, and if you check uh, the Footyology website, there's my 50 favourite movies of all time and this movie- and indeed part part two out today thursday so you can now read finding's top 50 movies from number 50 through to number 31 just a warning though um that these first two installments have been free the rest are going behind our patreon paywall so if you want to read the rest of finding's top 50 movies be a footyology subscriber which means jumping on and uh, giving us a small donation of US $5 at our Patreon page. Go on. And well played there. Clever way to get more Patreon fans. Because I think it's, a, you know, I've put a lot of work into this top 50. And Reservoir Dogs is part of it because it was the first feature film by Quentin Tarantino. And he literally went from, as I said in the article, who to wow overnight. It's a... It's actually a pretty basic story. It's not uh, like some of these other movies like Pulp Fiction. It's not non-linear. It's not confusing. It's actually a very simple story. It's just a bank robbery gone wrong. That's all it is. And for 99 minutes, uh, through the use of gangsters of colour, and when I say gangsters of colour, I don't mean that they're African-American or subcontinental. I mean, through characters like Mr. White, Mr. Brown, Mr. Pink, etc. Uh, and plenty of great music. Quentin Tarantino paints the screen red. It is. It was groundbreaking at the time because it really was relentless in its violence, relentless also in its comedy and its music and it's blurring of the lines between good and bad. You didn't know who the goodies were, you didn't know who the baddies were, and you ended up barracking for the baddies 
mainly because they were super cool. Can I just say quickly, would you agree that I'm not? A, I must admit, I'm not a huge Tarantino fan. I haven't seen everything he's done, but I would say one of his trademark devices is the depiction of horrible and graphic acts to a quite mundane context, i.e. someone's getting their nuts ripped off while you can hear a, a waltz going in the background yeah, or something. Yeah. Would you say that is a standard Tarantino device? Yes, it is. It's, it's the normalisation of brutal terror almost to comedic levels. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not rip your guts out laughing at it, but it's the juxtaposition is humorous. And uh, you're right. I think Quentin Tarantino hasn't been able to necessarily step beyond that dynamic to become a great director in a universal sense, in that he is capable of giving us surprises anymore, because a lot of his surprises we've seen before in his previous movies. But, and that's what the point I try to make with Reservoir Dogs, is we'd never seen anything like this before. So if you... Take yourself back to 1992, this was a magnificent movie. And it's almost what he's done since that has diluted its effect in re-watching. But when you first saw it, it was pretty good. And just a couple of um, side notes about Reservoir Dogs. And one of them is uh, I got married four years or yeah, four years later. And the opening of my wedding video is myself and my best wet men recreating that iconic um, promo for Reservoir Dogs of five guys walking along in suits to the music of Little Green Bag, you know, and it's me and my best men. So I guess four years later, it had enough of an effect on me that it was part of my wedding video. Okay. Uh, I wonder how Nat felt about that. Um, all right, uh, I am going with now just a quick shout out to a couple of uh, some good Australian movies that year, too. Romper Stomper, uh, Strictly Boru, uh, what else came out in '92? Wayne's World, Singles, uh, Sneakers, pretty good movie, Patriot Games, Sister Act, Whoopi Goldberg. I've gone though with a, a big box office number. I did really like this film, A Few Good Men directed by Rob Reiner, essentially a courtroom drama, but a military courtroom drama. Great cast, Finey. What do you think of this cast? Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon, Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, I think there's even a young Cuba Gooding Jr. as well. Uh, the plot is about uh, two Marines on trial for the murder of a fellow Marine. And uh, Tom Cruise uh, is appointed to their defence, uh, sort of being parachuted in over Demi Moore, who is pretty pissed off. But, of course, she comes to know and respect Tom Cruise's character. Uh, as they investigate what happened, they uncover a disturbing uh, chain of events going up the chain of command, uh, which leads them to deal with Jack Nicholson, who plays the slightly intimidating figure of Colonel Nathan Jessup at uh, Guantanamo Bay. Um, they go and interview him and he basically tells them to, you know what, off. And uh, they start thinking, uh, 
where there's smoke, there's fire. So the climax, of course, is an absolute, you know, there's a lot of courtroom scenes in movies, isn't there? But I reckon the one out of a few good men, the exchanges between Cruz and Nicholson are among the best in terms of courtroom scenes that I've seen in cinema and leading to surely one of the most instantly memorable exchanges in cinematic history, finally, uh, and everyone can recite it, is Tom Cruise saying, was yelling at Nicholson, who is in the witness box, I want the truth, to which Jack replies, finally. You can handle the truth. Correct. Uh, uh, brilliant acting performances by both. I like everyone else in it too. I'm not going to do a spoiler this time. I've wound my lesson. But if you haven't seen it, it really is a very, very good film. I like Rob Reiner as the director. I reckon he's done some great stuff, and, and this one is up with the best of them. All right, let's talk TV. Uh, and I like this. Uh, I, I think you should go first on TV. Okay. Um, go on. By the way, <laughs> I, I sort of cringe whenever I hear this. Our thoughts go out to Rob Reiner and his family. I'm sure he really cares about our thoughts. Oh, but, of yes. course, Carl, his father, Carl, Carl Reiner, Carl passed Ryan. away yesterday. Yep. Yep, sad, sad indeed. Oh, 98, it's a pretty good knock. Okay. Um, yeah, look, I don't reckon there was a lot of TV to choose from. And that makes you look a little closer at the possibilities. And I found a show that I really, really like. Now, I don't know if you're into travel logs, but I do love a well-made series of somebody, you know, uh, taking us on a journey around the world to places less visited. And I've got to say, I think the very best at it in my time, and I'm not talking about nature videos with David Attenborough or foodie videos with Rick Stein, I'm just talking about travel videos, is former Monty Python member Michael Palin. I think he's bloody brilliant at it. His first foray was a called Around the World in 80 Days, but I think his best series was a brilliant series where he did a lot of train travel, caught some boats, um, you know, jumped into some buses, but always travelled in the less likely mode in a series called Pole to Pole, where he travelled from North Pole to South Pole. And it's just a, a, a visit to places less seen. You know, he, he sleeps in a yurt in Mongolia. But all the way along, one thing he has in common is a, a real um, empathy and a real in the end, warmth connection with the people of the places that he travels to. And you know what? As somebody who loves to travel and enjoyed my time as a younger person traveling uh, as a backpacker, it's people, not places, that make the journey. And I think that's what's great about Pole to Pole. Oh, oh yeah. I must say, I don't remember it, but I would say Michael Palin is one of the most instantly likable uh, TV personas I've ever come across. I agree. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's just instantly likable, isn't he? There's I, a warmth about him. And... I think that is really true. You know, anybody who goes on television, unless you're playing the role of villain, wants to have that persona. And you know what? I agree with that. I think I'll change it. What really makes it is how likable Michael Palin is. And and you know who I'm runs? Also, I... you know who runs second to him? Tony Robinson, um, for mine. Yeah, Baldrick, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good call. I, I, I was a huge fan. I mean, I loved Monty Python as a kid, but I was almost as big a fan of Ripping Yarns. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah yes, Michael yes. Crowell's series. You know, it's got Tompkins and School Days, one of my favourite half hours of comedy. Uh, all right, I'm going with another comedy uh, from 92, and this was massive at the time. It, this became a real cult thing, so much so that it still survives in the occasional reunion and um, reworking of this show at various periods. Probably a bit dated now in some ways, but uh, I don't know about you, Fanny. I, I, I thought this show was fantastic. I loved it. Absolutely fabulous, or ab fab, as it came to be known. Jennifer Saunders, who wrote the whole thing, uh, and Joanna Lumley, absolutely brilliant as the two main characters, Eddie or Adina Monsoon and Patsy Stone, one of them a PR uh, director and the other one a magazine fashion director and they are a couple of ageing uh, or, yeah, uh, rapidly ageing women desperately trying to get their youth back and uh ingesting copious amounts of alcohol and recreational drugs and leading the lifestyle of women half their age and doing it badly, constantly, um, well, Adina anyway, constantly pulled into line by her long-suffering daughter, uh, Saffron or Safi, played by Julia Sawala, um, and her dotty mother, June Whitfield, playing uh, her mum, and the absolutely, completely mad uh, PA bubble played by Jane Horrocks. Uh, that was the other thing that struck me finally looking this show up, that it was probably one of the first times a whole ensemble of characters were, was predominantly women, you know, and um, the great thing about it is that uh, blokes loved it as well. They were just so funny. It was so well-written, Um you know, they were pathetic characters, both of them. And whilst you laughed at them, <laughs> strangely, you also ended up having a bit of compassion for them. Went for a long time. The original run went for five years, from 92 to 96. Has been reworked a couple of times over the journey. But they're famous comic characters, I think, in anyone's language when you're talking about famous TV comedy. Absolutely fabulous. I thought it was a great show. Did you like it? Loved it. And, you know, before Modern Family there was modern family because it wasn't just about um, Eddie and Patsy's binges and, you know, um, you talked about Steel Sidebottom not having a me drinking so much as to not have a memory of what happened. That was sort of the dynamic of this program. Constantly not That's knowing, true. constantly not knowing what had happened because they had been passed out on somebody, you know, Mick Jagger's floor, or always mentioning sort of famous people that whose parties they'd passed out at. Um, Eddie being the worst mother on the planet, but there's also this regular dynamic and of Eddie's. Is it Eddie's ex-husband turning yeah, up? Yeah, two two ex-husbands. Yeah, ex ex-husband and then their partner, that stupid American woman. You know, uh, you know, and and this disjointed, discombobulated family all getting together, and the common al the common link between all of them were they were all incredibly self centred and selfish. Yeah, uh, no, that's no, a good call. I got I got to tell you another thing about this. I always remember watching it originally and looking at Safi's character and thinking, you know, she was deliberately made to look a bit dowdy and yep. 
frumpy and weather beaten and stuff. And I remember thinking, she's quite a beautiful girl. Well, uh, I had a look at more contemporary pictures of her last night. Oh, she's a beautiful, beautiful woman. So do you know what do you uh, know what happened to her professionally? Something very interesting. No, because I, I couldn't she's got a twin sister or something. I don't know. Um, no, I don't know. I don't know what happened. So she went on a celebrity MasterChef, which generally in England oh, yeah. is a bit of a sort of a light hearted you know, waste of time because most of the celebrities can't cook and they just bumble through. But actually, to win it is quite an achievement, and she won it. And on the back ah. of winning Celebrity MasterChef, uh, she's become a TV chef of sorts. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Her background that. is, now I'm thinking it might be Palestinian, but it certainly is uh, Middle Eastern, that part of the world, and... Um, She's a wonderful chef, actually, a wonderful cook, and has taken us to that part of the world with a couple of cooking programs. So an interesting sort of career turn for her on the back of winning a cooking competition on Celebrity MasterChef. You are a treasure trove of amazing information, Mark Fine. I will give you that. All right, let's finish off with a footy memory. I'm going to go first. Um, Couldn't go past this one. It was a... Uh, a huge moment in the history of the game, and that is the first premiership won by a side from outside Victoria at their second attempt at a grand final. West Coast, of course, knocking over Geelong in the 92 grand final. And they certainly earned their stripes on the way. First made finals in their second season in 88. 1990 had an incredible finals campaign where they had to travel something like five or six weeks in a row, fell over at the preliminary final hurdle. Uh, 91 were clearly the team of the season, but just faltered right at the end and were beaten by Hawthorne. Uh, But 92, uh, even though ironically they didn't perform through the season as well as they had 91, uh, they were definitely ready and they came out and uh, piled their way through the final series. Even so, uh, grand final day, there was a stage there where I think three or four goals down against the Cats shortly before half time, but a couple of goals from Tony Evans got them back into it. And then one of, and finally, I've got to say this in thinking about this, I know Peter Matera won the Norm Smith medal for his 92 grand final, but when you talk about the absolute best handful of grand final performances ever, that has got to be up there. Five goals from a win. Five goals and 18 disposals from a win. Absolutely turned the game in the third quarter. And West Coast came storming home to win their first flag by oh, the best part of five goals in the end. Uh, huge achievement. Uh, Mick Malthouse coach. Cast of thousands we're all familiar with now. John Warsfold, the skipper. The late Chris Main Waring. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et Peter Sumich, Chris Lewis, etc. Etc. Massive achievement and a very hard-earned and well-earned premiership to the Eagles. A very important moment in the evolution of the national competition. What's your footy memory? Okay, I'll do it from my perspective, a little bit um, personal. So, in about, I reckon it would have been about July. Now, you know what's a real pity? Every club used to have their own club magazine, and they were bloody yeah. good publications, really good publications. At their at their height, uh, certainly the ones at St Kilda, the Saint, was a full-colour, 
um, earnest production edited by Russell Holmesby, and they were must-reading for all uh, fans of that football club. You either got them through the club, or if you remember, you had it sent out to you. So in mid-June, I would say, or around that time, uh, there was a, in, of 1992, there was a competition, because 1992 was St Kilda's final year at Moorabbin, and the competition put forward by the St Kilda Cheer Squad was to write the words, pen the words for the final run through at Moorabbin. And I thought at the time I thought that's quite odd because the Cheer Squad had been charged with that responsibility um, since the dawn of time, and they were handing over the right to write the final banner to the public. And I thought that's you know they're missing out on the greatest banner of all. So I took up the challenge. And I remember when I wrote it, because I wanted to include some players, and I, I could only include four players in my in my ode to Moorabbin. It's very hard to pick four players between 65 and 92 to be the right players. So it was with a really heavy heart that I left out Trevor Barker, for example. But it went from plugger. I had to put Tony Lockett in. From plugger to Carl, um, from so it was plugger to Carl, um, the cowboy. No, no, I remember <laughs> um, the cowboy because I loved Kevin Neal, just adored him. To the dock, to all the saints who made the grandstand rock, the good times, and I had to be honest because they were not all good times at Moorabbin. The good times, the bad times, the bitter, the sweet, thanks for the memories, Linton Street. Because, of course, Moorabbin was known as Linton Street. And when I sent it off, I thought, that's bloody good, but it can't win because that would require seven banners. You know, that's a lot of writing. So it was much to my great surprise when I got a call from a member of the cheer squad that they were going to make the largest banner in their history to accommodate that poem. And I was invited to be on the ground to help them hoist the banner, uh, to receive a an official club. You know, the players ran out in Valentine's. They were our sponsors. Tracksuit tops. I got one of those. And I went out to do all that. And waiting for me at the banner was Channel 10 reporter Eddie Maguire. Now, there's a bit of a version currently on YouTube you can look up that shows... I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad you fessed up, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that has that news report. But I actually received, when I was working with Ian Cohen on 1116 SEN, Ian was a Channel 10 reporter, he gave me the uncut version of that. And there's actually quite a... There's like a three-minute interview between me and Eddie. And that... That's really interesting, you know. I've got the big mullet and, um, you know, Eddie. Can I just can I just tell you, yeah. the first, someone, this is true, someone sent me that clip last year yeah. and said, oh, check this out, and I watched it and I thought, oh, yeah, interesting story. Why are they sending me this? And I messaged them back and saying, yeah, and they said, geez, he looks different, doesn't he? And I said, who? And they said, fine. And I said, what? They said, yeah, go to the two-minute whatever mark. And I didn't. I said, oh, my effing God. I could – you were unrecognisable. I had <laughs> no idea it was you. There you go. 
Oh, amazing. Uh, great, no, great story. It is a good, actually, I'll give, I'll give Eddie his dues. As a reporter, he used to do those sort of stories really well. Yeah, was, uh, Channel 10 actually used to have a great footy segment in there. Uh, five, it was five o'clock news, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and he and Quarters did it. Yeah, uh, it's on YouTube, everyone. Check it out. See Mark Fine with hair. It, it told. And see if you can spot him. It told the. It certainly told the tale of the last game, which, by the way, St Kilda won against Fitzroy. All right, uh, there it is. Nineteen ninety-two. That was a good one. I reckon that was a very enjoyable year to talk about it in uh, music, movies, TV, and footy. We're going to wrap things up there. Uh, could you please give our wonderful sponsors another plug, Mark? Yes, I'd run through these banners any day of the week. In fact, I'd write an ode to them. Let's see if I can think of one quickly. When you're hungry and there's a meal to be swallowed down, there's only one place to go to for the best burgers in town. Whether it's early in the morning or late at night after dark, head to 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park. Andrew's Hamburgers, the best in town. That's pretty good. Can you Have you got one for uh, Westport Properties? That's okay. harder to rhyme. Yeah, yeah. If there's a house that needs building for any human being, it was good enough for Pendlebury, Heppel and Mike Sheehan. Then the people to go to, the ones who lay it best brick by brick, are West Point properties run by my mate Nick. <laughs> uh, not bad, not bad. Uh, <laughs> all right, we'll, 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 we'll leave things there. Um, and uh, thanks to you, our wonderful audience as well. Like I said earlier, and we really are trying to grow the Footyology brand and the website in particular. So please, if you like what we do, give us a give us a bit of uh, tangible support. You can do that at our Patreon page. Just head to Patreon. Five bucks a month. And do, a, do a search on Footyology. Five bucks a month US. Look, to be honest, I'm biased, but we are really upping the ante on the content. We're talking about a whole lot of popular culture stuff now, not just footy, and uh, a couple of very exciting announcements ahead, which hopefully I can let you in on over the next couple of weeks. So uh, support us. You can also support us right here uh, on Acast, who uh, we work with to produce this show. And uh, there's a facility to do that on whatever podcast platform you use. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on uh, Sunday night with our review edition of Round 5. Hope your team has a win this week. We'll see you later.